You're listening to the podcast Bible Companion series by author P.H. Thompson. This is a chronological Bible study going chapter by chapter, discovering Christ in all of Scripture. This is an introduction to the historical books and an introduction to the book of Joshua. The historical books follow the books of Moses, also called the books of the Law, the Torah, and the Pentateuch. That is not to say that the books of Moses are not historical records, for they are, but their main focus is the giving of God's law to Israel. The historical books are recognized in categories in several ways. Joshua judges 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. These were sometimes called the former prophets, and they cover a period of approximately 800 years. The books of 1st and 2nd Chronicles, which repeat much of what we see in the books of Samuel and Kings, along with Ezra, Nehemiah, and Ruth, are called the writings in the Hebrew Bible. Others um, include the 12 books of Joshua to Esther as the historical books. So these books cover a period of history from the conquest to the end of the Babylonian captivity. Introduction to the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua is the first of the 12 historical books from Joshua to Esther. It forms a link between the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses or the law, and the remainder of Israel's history. Joshua's challenge was to lead the people to claim the land of Canaan God had promised to them. He was 90 when he took over leadership of Israel and 110 when he died. Joshua leads three major military campaigns, west, north, and south, involving more than 30 armies. He is a capable leader and the people learn that victory comes through faith in God and obedience to his word, rather than through numerical superiority or military might. They are promised they will defeat nations greater in number and stronger militarily than they. The title of the book is appropriately named after the central character. His original name, Hosea, means salvation, but Moses changes it to Joshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. It corresponds to the New Testament name Jesus, which is significant because Jesus leads his people into a new promised land, a heavenly Canaan. In each chapter, we will see many scarlet threads, hints of Jesus Christ or the gospel. So Joshua was was born under Egyptian slavery, was trained under Moses, and by God's choice, rose to his position of leading the conquest generation into Canaan. So these were the people who were under 20 when God cursed them with 40 years of wilderness wandering. Now they are 60 and under, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. There are four miracles recorded in this book, the holding back of the waters of the Jordan, the fall of Jericho's walls, the hailstones, and the long day. When approaching any book of the Bible, it's important to establish basic facts. So we ask questions. Who, to whom, what, when, where, why, and how? So first of all, who wrote it? So we know from verses such as Joshua 8.34, 24.26, and 18.8 that Joshua wrote or instructed others to write part of the book. Other references to us and we suggest it was written by eyewitnesses. The account of Joshua's death must have been written by someone else, as in the case of Moses. To whom was it written? 
It was written primarily for the children of Israel so they'd know their history and how they came to displace the nations that lived in the area first. But ultimately, because it is scripture, it is written for all believers in all places and time periods. Christians look back to these events as the foundations of their legacy of faith, the nation from which Jesus came. What is it? The book of Joshua recounts the crossing of the river Jordan into Canaan, led by Moses' successor, Joshua. It follows the death of Moses, recorded in Deuteronomy 34, through the conquest of Canaan to Joshua's death. It recounts a covenant renewal ceremony, many battles to take the land, spiritual incidents, both good and bad, as they fight, and an allotment of land to the twelve tribes by inheritance. When was it written? The events of the book of Joshua are believed to have taken place over a period of 50 years, from 1400 BC to 1350 BC. The conquest of Canaan began 40 years after the exodus from Egypt. But we don't know exactly when it was written. Suggestions range from 1405 to 1385 BC. Joshua 4.9 and 7.26 suggests that some time had passed between the events and their recording, while we see that Rahab was still alive when it was written. The mention of the book of Jasher, also mentioned in 1 Samuel 1.18, suggests a time during the early monarchy, but these would, uh, stories would have been passed down in oral tradition. Joshua perhaps began writing it, but it was completed during the time of the early monarchy. So where was it written? Well, if part of it was written by Joshua, it would have been written on both the east and west sides of the Jordan, where most of the events took place. And why was it written? To document the conquest of Canaan in obedience to the command of God, with an interpretation of the account from God's point of view, their actions and his response. It shows God's faithfulness to be with his people and give them the victory he promised in order to give them the land promised to their ancestors. This would be a testimony to Israel and the surrounding nations that God keeps his promises. It shows God's response to sin within the community of faith and on the pagan nations. It shows God's sovereignty in preparing the way by putting the fear of them and their God into the hearts of the people. It shows the division of the land by lot, with 48 towns given to the Levites. It shows their failure to fully obey God. The book of Judges will show the tragic results of this failure. How was it written? The book recounts these events in four sections, entering the land, claiming the land, dividing the land, and Joshua's final days. Difficulties. First, let's discuss the elephant in the room. The difficulties in this book are related more to the sensibilities of the reader, who will read of the destruction of Achan's entire family, or God ordering the complete genocide of the nations uh, currently inhabiting the Promised Land, and will then place themselves in a position of judgment on God and Scripture. There is a danger in thinking we are morally superior to our God, who, unlike us, always judges righteously. In the case of Achan's sin, we may think God is being unfair by punishing Achan's family along with him, 
when, in the case of the rebellion of Korah, their children weren't put to death with them, according to Numbers 26.11. The reason for this was God's own decree that parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. So, in this case, we must infer that God knew their thoughts and motives. It also doesn't say that they are children, just that they are his children. In God's assessment of the situation, he tells Joshua, Israel has sinned, they have violated my covenant, which I have commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things, they have stolen, they have lied, they have put them with their own possessions. So this deception and concealment of evidence seems to be attributed to more than one person, although Achan is named. He must have shown them to his family, who agreed to hide the accursed things. And in a case where more details aren't given, it's safest to trust that God, who knows all things, knows the hearts of his creatures. We may be tempted to think God was harsh in ordering the annihilation of the Canaanites and other peoples of the land. We wouldn't do such a thing, would we? No, but that's because we don't have God's wisdom. He gave them space to repent, 400 years in fact, until the sin of the Amorites um, had, not, had finally reached its full measure. So these were wicked nations who worshipped idols, practiced ritual prostitution and child sacrifice. The time of judgment had come, and God chose to do it by using the Israelites. But whenever we think that God is being harsh, either when he judged the whole earth in the time of Noah, or here in the time of conquest, or eventually when all unbelievers are sentenced to hell for eternity, we need to step back and realize two things. God is holy, and we are not. We fail to acknowledge that all his ways are just, and that we are sinful beyond our own understanding. Jeremiah 17.9 says the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Therefore, God adds, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. His judgments are always judge just. It should go without saying that God will do what is right. As Abraham asked, Will not the judge of all the earth do right? He is the judge of what is right, not we. Like Job, we have to acknowledge that we have limited knowledge and therefore we can't do anything but put our hands over our mouths. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. I am unworthy, how can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Paul also says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. This reminds us that we are all guilty and all deserve worse than death. We deserve eternal hell. Yet because of his mercy, he saves us. It is the knowledge of his judgment on sin that makes us appreciate his grace towards us even more. When we don't understand what God is doing or why, we have to rest in his character. He is God and we are not. Paul says, 
Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Solomon says, Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. So we are the creature, he is the creator. And Paul adds, but who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? We have to acknowledge we are as powerless and wise as a lump of clay. Also, the reason God ordered this was so that Israel could avoid the idolatry which caused the destruction of these nations in the first place. He warned that if they left them in the land, they would be ensnared by their gods and turn away from God. Then you, would be sh you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. And sadly, because of their failure to completely destroy those peoples, Israel did fall into idolatry and then experienced the curses God warned them about. So this is a sobering reminder that our own country is not immune to the judgment of God when we celebrate the things that God condemns and sacrifice our children on the altar of convenience in the horrible practice of abortion. We need to cry out for mercy from God that he'd grant repentance to our nation instead of the judgment we deserve. We will revisit this issue as we proceed through the book and see how we can reconcile it with what we see about God in the New Testament. Other challenges in this book include how could God bless Rahab's faith since it was related to her telling a lie? And why was Ai, with fewer men than Israel, hard to conquer? So the book of Joshua is hopeful in that the people were obedient to the Lord for the most part at least during the lifetime of Joshua and the elders. We read that Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. But it ends on that note as a contrast to what is to come with the new generation in the book of Judges, which says, After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. So just as each successive generation needs to be evangelized, so the new generation had to learn for themselves that God could be trusted and must be worshipped and obeyed. You've been listening to the podcast Bible Companion series by author P.H. Thompson. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and comment. Continue listening for Joshua chapter 1. May God bless the study of his word.